you thought that the idea for the Metropolitan Police originated with Sir Robert Peel, you'd be wrong. If you thought that the Metropolitan Police have never been armed, you'd be wrong again. In this fascinating episode, I met up with Robert Jeffries, honorary curator of the Thames Police Museum in Wapping. Robert is not only an expert on all things pertaining to the Thames River Police, he's also a consummate storyteller. Recorded at the original and spiritual home of modern-day policing, Robert recounts the wealth and violence that permeated the River Thames and surrounding areas back in 1798, and how the Thames River Police have over the years been a leading and integral part of preventative policing and heroically saving lives ever since. Each week, I'll be asking my guests to tell us one or two of their favourite secret places to visit in London, whether it's a restaurant, pub, museum or simply a lovely walk. So make sure you listen to the end of the show, where my guest will spill the beans on their legacy reveal. I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is Your London Legacy. Well, we're here today in the, what is colloquially known, I should say, as the spiritual home of modern-day policing, I believe, here in Wapping Police Station, or the Wapping Museum Police Station, for the Thames River Police. And I'm delighted to say I'm joined, in fact, I've been invited into the museum today by the honorary curator Rob Jeffries. So welcome Rob. Thank you very much. It's an absolute treat to be here because I for one didn't have a clue about this place and I'm sure <laughs> although you know you, you live and breathe this every day. Yeah. Not quite every day sometimes it just seems like it but we're, we're very proud of it. it yeah. It's no, something we we think is worth maintaining and keep, keeping going. Absolutely it's it really is a treat to be here and we'll, we'll talk about the museum but I also want to talk a little bit, I want you to give us a whistle-stop tour, if you will, of modern-day policing and how it developed from literally where we're sitting today and how the Thames River Police started off and their connection with West India Company way back in the mid-1700s and how a lot of people think that Robert Peel was the first, you know, and the Peelers were the first organised police force, but in fact... That's not correct, is it? Yeah, the Metropolitan Police are Johnny-come-latelys compared <laughs> to us. Uh, we, we predate the Metropolitan Police by some 31 years. And the Thames River Police can be seen as the forerunners of modern policing. Policing as we know it today, that is policing on a preventative model where the primary object of policing is the prevention of crime, began right here on the 2nd of July, Monday the 2nd of July, 1798, at five o'clock in the morning, when our resident magistrate, John Harriet, would, I've got absolutely no doubt, been down on the foreshore, waving off his first screws, crews as they went off uh, to fight crime on the river, uh, because crime there was a plenty. This was a time when the country was at war. We were fighting uh, Napoleon. 1798 was uh, when uh, Nelson fought the Battle of the Nile against Napoleon. And on that summer morning in, in uh, 1798, that's when policing began in this country. And every police force in this country, every civilian police force, every civilian police force around the world can trace its history back to that Monday morning all those all those years ago and the reason why they needed a, a police force on the river thames was because of the huge amount of crime that was taking place on the river that time so just set the scene what the river goes today as as you said i walked up from wapping station up wapping high high street i think it's called mm, yeah. to where we are today which is wapping police station and the, the museum next to it and we're right on the river here and it's very quiet as I walked up on the cobbledy streets. Almost ghost-like. Almost <laughs> ghost-like, yes. You could almost feel, you know, yeah. the history as you're walking up. Just explain what it would have been back then, what, you know, how the river would have seemed and, and the number of boats and the, the smells and the sounds. And Just give us a feeling for well, that. The area where we are on the river is called the Pool of London. And back in the late 18th century, London was the largest port in the world. London was the fabulously wealthy capital of arguably the richest and most powerful nation in the world at that time. Uh, and ships came quite literally from all around the world, from our own coasts, from European coasts, uh, and the most valuable cargoes came to London uh, from the West Indies. The rums, the spices, the sugars. Sugars was a, a cargo, sugar was a cargo of immense value. Fortunes were made and lost on sugar uh, and of course inevitably slavery and the West India merchants were the people who who ran that trade they were the richest and most powerful uh, merchants at that time now it was estimated by a chap called Patrick Colquhoun uh, who was a magistrate in London at the time that about 500,000 pounds 
was lost in crime or as depredations, as he called it, uh, from the thieves or delinquents, as he referred to them. And about 250,000, so roughly half all the crime on the river, was at the expense of the West Indian merchants. Uh, so unsurprisingly, the West Indian merchants really wanted to uh, mitigate their losses. And they, to cut a long story short, they approached uh, Colquhoun and said, you know, can you help us with this? Can you give us a way that we can lessen the criminality? He said, well, yes, we should have a more efficient means of policing. But the fact of the matter is that's just not a popular thing in London at the moment. Uh, so we need to get government approval. So I'm sure the West India merchants got together with Colquhoun, approached the government of the day, the Home Secretary, the Duke of Portland. It was eventually persuaded to try out a body of police on the river to try and prevent the theft. And he was quite willing and happy to pay for the two magistrates which would run this force. Incidentally, they would be Harriet and Colquhoun. But he, he didn't want to pay for the, for the body of police itself. It would just be too politically contentious. So they had to find someone to foot the bill. And that, that group of people was the West India merchants. The bill in question would be £4,200, an awful lot of money in those days. But since they were losing £250,000, it's what we in today's language would probably call a no-brainer. So on the 2nd of July, 1798, the West India Merchants and Planters Marine Police Institute came into being at what was then 256 Wapping High Street. It was paid for by the West India Merchants, and in that first year of operation, the police saved the merchants about £100,000. So for a £4,200 outlay, they were quite pleased about that. It saved the government about £50,000 in duties and taxes. Which today would be millions, oh, I'm yes. guessing. I mean, yeah, yes, an absolutely sum. huge amount. Enough to make the government smile and enough to make them forget their objections to having a riverborne police force. And so they passed the Marine Police Act in 1800 to make the police responsible, not just for West India ships, as it was in the first two years, but for all the shipping on the river. So... Roughly how many ships would have been moored here or anchored here in the, in the port? Well, the terminology was in those days that the river was a forest of masts, that you could literally walk across the uh, decks, uh, walk across the river on the decks of all these ships, literally vying for space to, to, un to unload their cargoes. There was never less than a thousand ships in the Pool of London. Uh, and in any, I think Colquhoun calculated, because statistics was his big thing. Uh, he calculated that in 1794 there would have been 13,444 ships, large trading merchant ships coming into the Pool of London and that's not taken into account all the small barges and, and local boats. That, I guess that aside from there. crime that must have been, obviously was rife at the time, hence the formation of the police, the, the amount of accidents that must have occurred and deaths and in, injuries that must have occurred on the river must have been astronomical. Yeah, but uh, nowadays that would be something for the police to worry about. In those days, they were simply worried about crime. Uh -huh. The crime against property was all they were concerned about. They didn't worry about bodies or anything like that, just criminality on so the what, what, So what was the process for bringing cargo in and uh, offloading it and the, the opportunities for, for thieves at okay. the time? Calhoun estimated that there was something like 1,417 feet of legal key space between London Bridge and the Tower. Now, when you've got uh, 13,500 ships coming in, it doesn't take a, a great mathematical genius to work out you're not going to get that amount of shipping alongside legal key space. So you had to moor these ships up in a great raft of shipping, down from about Vauxhall today down to about uh, Deptford and, and Greenwich. And out to these ships, you would send an army of men these men would go out to the ships and quite literally lump the cargoes off of the ships. So these men became known quite simply as lumpers. Now the problem was about a third of those lumpers, about, there was about 35,000 of them, were known to be thieves uh, and receivers of, of, of goods. Uh, so not surprisingly an awful lot of cargo uh, went, went, went missing, particularly when you know that these lumpers usually weren't actually paid a wage. Why would you pay them a wage? Because you know they're going to help themselves to whatever they can right. get their hands on. Uh -huh. So in many ways, the merchants of the day uh, cooperated. They, they, they knew that these guys were going to take whatever they could get their hands on. And it was a very green economy. 
Anything that was cloth had a resale value. Any metal had a resale value. Old rope, they would pick and have a resale value. Hence the term to get money for old rope. There was literally money lying about that, waiting, As we've been talking be before, before we came live, there's so many expressions that are derivatives from things at this time. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Nailing your colours to the mast was one of them. That's right, yeah. 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 So... Sugar, which was obviously one of the key cargoes, that was, yeah. which was um, subject to criminal activity, shall yeah. we say. Yeah. When large bags of sugar were, were nicked from the boats, who would they were received, obviously, into right. the criminal yeah. world. Where were they taken from there? Who would be interested in that? Well, if, if you were a lumper working on the river and you'd get your hands on, on sugar, happy days. But that was most unlikely going to happen. The actual valuable cargoes were the perk, if you job, of, if you like, of organized gangs of criminals now Calhoun wrote about these in his in his treatise and the criminals who dealt almost exclusively with West India ships after the hours of darkness uh, and went on board and ransacked those ships they go on board by by subterfuge sometimes by sheer force of numbers and quite literally take whatever they could get their hands on and of course sugar was 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 high on the list so this was organized criminality mm on a grand, grand scale. So, and these groups of criminals were actually called light horsemen. Colquhoun used a whole series of terms uh, that we wouldn't recognise today. But if you read his treatise, he, he names them light horsemen, heavy horsemen, scuffle hunters, game watermen and customers, uh, everyone working on the river. Term, terminology, it's fantastic. Yeah, all those, all those trades, uh, they all had their own little scams and their own way of making money. And this, this story is not just of the big um, gangs going in and, and lifting all this gear off the, off the ships, but also of you know, some of the individual sort of petty thieves going in and put, stuffing their clothes full of gear and sugar. That's, that's right. I mean, literally, they, they would go on board. The, the big gangs would go on board with, with coopers and that sort of thing to get into the barrels. Uh, they have bladders and jiggers to empty the casks of, 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 of rum. But yeah, the ordinary people, I mean, the most famous one that, that everyone sort of knows about is the rat catchers. And if you want to know how a rat catcher would, would earn extra money, every ship coming into a port, everyone knows has got rats on board. If it doesn't have rats on board when it arrives in port, it very soon does have when the rat catcher goes on and lets his little furry friends run around. Now, no one wants to be on board a ship when a rat catcher is doing his work. And so he's got pretty much rain to run around doing whatever he likes, taking whatever whatever he can. And when he's finished, he summons his little friends back into the cage, and off he goes to the. So next he would ship. deliberately introduce rats into the uh, right. into the yeah. ship yeah. to scare everybody off. That's right. Fantastic. Yeah, that'd be an interesting way, way to do burglaries today. I'm just thinking, <laughs> someone who's been involved in insurance crime and theft for many many years. It would be a different <laughs> way of doing it, certainly. <laughs> so obviously, the scene is now set. You've got massive crime going on in the port you've got a need to stop this bleeding if you like of income for the government yeah. and um, industry as well yeah. so the marine force are then initiated back in would you say 1798, 1798 yeah. so how did it develop and how was it how was it perceived amongst the general populace and what were some of the sort of key incidents that took place early doors well Unsurprisingly, uh, the lumpers of the day weren't greatly enamoured of this uh, new new police force because where before they had access to their perks of the job to feed their families uh, with this new police force uh, who had their own specially selected lumpers who were properly paid for the for the very first time. But that meant that the old lumpers were sitting around doing doing nothing very very much, um, and there then occurred. Just a few months after, so if the, if the police began in July 1798, uh, the first officer killed on duty, a chap by the name of Gabriel Franks, uh, lost his life on what became known as the Wapping Coal Riots. Uh, coal was a vital commodity in London. Everybody needed coal. How you got your coal depended on your social status. Uh, so if you were rich, you could have your coal delivered. This was right the way up. So I can remember coal being delivered to, 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 to my place. But if you were poor, then you had to find another way of getting your coal. Now, there was never less than 90 colliers, that's coal-carrying ships, bringing coal into London from Newcastle. It was a never-ending cycle. They'd come down from Newcastle, 
dump their coal, go back up to the northeast for another consignment. So there was never less than 90 of these colliers delivering a huge amount of coal in, 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 into London. And these ships were unloaded by a group of worker denoted as coal heavers. These men quite literally went on board the ships as soon as they docked. They would shovel coal for all their worth. Uh, and and that would go some of it away for the merchants, but of course the coal heavers had a quite a lavish uh, lifestyle, which around which uh, revolved around drinking. These men worked as a team and they socialised as a team. You probably didn't want to get in the way of a gang of coal heavers after they finished their day's work. Absolutely covered in coal dust. They didn't bother showering or anything like that. They just went straight out into the pubs and taverns which proliferated in Wapping at, at, at that time. And that had to be paid for. And it was paid for, of course, by the perks of the job. And the perks of the job for a coal heaver, unsurprisingly, would be coal. As much coal as they could individually carry, and being big, strong boys, they could carry quite a lot. That was their particular perk of the job. And they would dispose of that coal in illegal coal markets around the Wapping area. Wapping High Street, Execution Dock, which was just outside the, the police station here, were well-known locations for the sale of illicit coal. Uh, and they made quite a lot of money out of it. Unfortunately, that was taking place right under the noses of our two brand new magistrates, Colquhoun and Harriet, who decided they wanted to put an end to this uh, illegal tr uh, trading in, in coal. So they started arresting them. Now, Colquhoun was quite a religious man, a very religious man. And he was very much aware, not only of his own status in society, but of his own responsibilities to society, particularly to the poor of, of, uh, of, of London. Uh, and so he was really quite lenient to the, uh, the coal heavers. And he gave them, first of all, what we would call today verbal warnings. Go ye away from this uh, police court and sin no more. Which has to be said to a gang of coal heavers... Uh, <laughs> was about the same as a, a, an ASBO has on a kid from an <laughs> East London housing estate. It had no effect uh -huh. whatsoever. Uh, and so, with regret and reluctantly, they had to up the ante, they had to up the punishment, and punishment was increased to 40 shilling fines. Now, 40 shillings, two pounds in, in today's money, was quite a lot of money. In, in, in today's money, it would be worth about, about 150 pounds. So going from a smack on the wrist to a 150 pound fine was, was, was quite an increase. But these fines were invariably paid on the nail. When the fine was levied, they would pay it straight up front. Probably goes to indicate how lucrative this illicit trade in, in, in coal was. So on the 16th of October 1798, three coal heavers are arrested and brought before the magistrate. The leader was a man by the name of Ayres, George Ayres. They go before the magistrates, they're found guilty of uh, theft of coal and they're levied their 40 shilling fines which are paid. George Ayres has a hot-headed brother, a guy by the name of James Ayres. And James Ayres isn't in court to hear the sentence passed. Instead, he's around the local pubs and taverns uh, and he's winding up the local people. He's something of a hot-headed orator. Uh, and he's telling them, my brother is in court today, charged with theft of coal. He's done nothing wrong. He hasn't stolen anything. All he's done is take his legitimate perks of the job, which is the right of every river worker. Brothers, we're going to march on that police office and we're going to demand they pay them their money back. And if they're not going to pay them their money back, then we're going to burn the place down and kill the magistrates inside. Are you with me, brothers? And they march on the Wapping Police Office. They come down the side entrance, they come in, they demand the money be repaid, and the magistrates politely decline. A row breaks out, the row breaks into an argument, a fight. Suddenly, the men outside who followed Ayres down are hurling up bricks and, and levering up paving stones, hurling them through the, 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 the windows. Harriet decrees that anyone having no proper business at the court must leave immediately and the shutters must be uh, closed and locking everyone out. He then takes his very few officers up the stairs. They break open the firearms. Anyone who tells you the British police were traditionally unarmed is mistaken. I was coming on to that. You beat me to it. Yeah. They go up, they open the windows, and now they've got a point of vantage over the alleyway down below, and they open fire on the, on the rioting crowd down below, killing one of the rioters. The crowd disperse, where they're going to come back bigger and angrier than, than, than ever. 
Now, I talked about lumpers earlier on and lumpers being part of the river police. The lumpers would have had an extra job. Many of the lumpers who worked for the river police or the, 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 uh, the West Indian Merchants Police also worked as publicans. And one such was a, a, a lumper and publican called Gabriel Franks. And his pub was very close to the station. He heard the shots being fired. He saw the crowds dispersing. He came down the alleyway. He knocked on the door, said, let me in. I'll come and help. Go away, Gabriel. No one's coming in. No one's going out until this matter is resolved. Gabriel should have gone back to his pint. He didn't. He stood there uh, taking notes of the people as they begin to come back. As the crowds began to multiply, he began to feel himself quite justifiably, I think, at risk. And he said to his friends, I'm going to go away and see if I can find a weapon to defend ourselves if we need to, a cutlass of some sort. He got up, he moved away, a shot rang out, and Gabriel Franks took a musket ball straight through the chest. Didn't kill him, not straight away. He took a few days to die. And in the end, they questioned him about who fired the shot. Gabriel Franks did not have a clue. But now, once he's died, the government have a problem. They've got a newly formed police office, an official police office, and one of its officers is now dead. Something's got to be done about it. Someone's got to be put on trial. Who fired the shot? We don't know. Will we ever find out? Unlikely. So who are we going to put on trial? How about the man, the hot-headed brother, who started the riot in the first place? So they go and arrest James Ayres. They charge him with murder, and off he goes to the old Bailey to stand his trial, where he's found guilty. And the judge puts on his black cap and says, you'll be taken from here to a place of lawful execution and there hanged by the deck, by the neck until you are dead. May the Lord have mercy on your soul. To which Ayres replies, I, sir, I hope he will. What we don't know is, did he actually die of execution? Was he actually executed? In those days, sometimes uh, if you'd committed a capital offence, like murder, but you hadn't actually pulled the trigger, and no one suggested that he ever did pull the trigger that shot Gabriel Franks. Sometimes your sentence would be commuted. didn't mean you got off. It just means the sentence would be lessened. So from execution, you might expect life imprisonment or uh, transportation. But of course, life imprisonment would mean you spend life imprisonment, literally life imprisonment, in a grotty 18th century jail. And transportation might mean you'd end your days in a Tasmanian mosquito swamp or, or, or some such thing. Yeah. Uh, so perhaps he thought to himself, well, you know, dangling at the end of a rope for 15 minutes is not such a bad way to end this life. If we have to, we just don't know. Yeah, well, that's a wonderful story, and you're a marvelous, <laughs> you're a marvelous story, storyteller. I have to give you that as well. And I should also say, you're ex ex copper as well, aren't you? You're, yeah, you're ex yeah. I, yeah. I, I served thirty two years. For thirty two years, just to put it into context as well. So your knowledge of history is fantastic, as well mm. as uh, of the police. I mean, the general history of the local areas is just wonderful. So we have our first, if you like, slaying of a copper. Mm. We have a first riot against the police force as well. But we have the formation of and desire to form a, a, an official organisation, official police force, because at the time they were just responsible for the waterways, the river and the waterways around That's it, and, right, the, and yeah. some of the local thoroughfares yeah. and the wharfs and so on. Yeah. But there was a need to expand that into landed police yeah. as well. I mean, once, once they got over their, their basic fear of having a, a, a police force coming into the 19th century, Peel famously wanted to put his a, a body of police, which would become eventually the uh, the, the Metropolitan Police. But there was huge opposition to it. Now, the bodies of police you had at that time, you would have had the River Police, you would have had the Bow Street Runners, but they were not to be included in the original force which became the Metropolitan Police. They were included 10 years later. And the, the, the body of police that was the, became the Metropolitan Police uh, had to undergo a bit of a, a baptism of fire because people weren't at all happy with having a police force. Today, we rather take it for granted. Uh, but in those days, the high... Now we're unhappy with not having a police force. Well, <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's, that's one of the supreme ironies, yeah. 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 Uh, but in those, in those days, uh, they were, there was definite suspicion that a police force, a body of police, would actually be used to oppress the people of, 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 of Londoners. Uh, and, and, Peel, and I'm sure that's why Peel didn't actually include the River Police and the Bow Street Runners in his in initial force, because he would have known if it all goes wrong and the whole thing gets shelved by the next government, then he would have lost everything, at least if he keeps his two other forces separate. Uh, then at least if it all does go wrong, 
he's still got the force, the, the, the river police force and, and, and the Bow Street runners. And the river police and the Bow Street runners joined the, uh, what was the Metropolitan Police by then, in August 1839. The river police became Thames Division of the Metropolitan Police and the Bow Street runners went into oblivion. Quite basically, the Bow Street runners thought it was beneath their dignity to join this rather tatty uh, and as they considered it not very efficient body of police and at that, that time that's when the Met was formed and, yes. and yeah. subsumed the Thames River Police that's, at that time that's right, a separate yeah. De- yeah. Uh, department if you like which is where, where we are now we're in the head office if you that's like right, or the yeah. museum adjacent to the head office so what are some of the key historical moments that have happened in the, in the, the lifetime of this division uh, well one of the reasons why it was, it was thought that they needed a proper landborn police was a famous set of murders that occurred in 1811 and is now known as the Ratcliffe Highway Murders. Basically, this, this involved uh, a, a family of mercers, a, 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 a sailor. Yeah, no, we've got, so we've got a helicopter overhead by the sounds of it. I hope there's nothing going on outside. No, every one of the, um, the Sikorsky double-bladed ones. They, okay. They have, they have to fly along the river. Okay, no problem. <laughs> uh, so the... Ratcliffe Highway murders basically highlighted a need for a land-based police force other than uh, the waterborne police. Uh, And and this was a series of seven murders uh, which occurred within a half mile of of Wapping. Uh, The first first four murders were a a family of people. The the Marr family, uh, Timothy Marr, was an ex-sailor who'd left the, the seas behind to open up a mercery business actually in the Ratcliffe Highway. Uh, it, it, itself uh, and he his wife a serving apprentice uh, and a three-month-old baby were all brutally murdered uh, by having their throats cut and their and their uh, heads bludgeoned on the Saturday and Sunday nights of the uh, 7th and 8th of December 1811. You've got a remarkable memory for dates but yeah I'll <laughs> take your word for it I've got the date here 1811. Yeah yeah well that caused outrage and consternation amongst the, uh, the, the, the Riverside community around, around Wapping and Shadwell. Uh, so much so that the Home Secretary feared there may be public disorder and he wanted early arrests made. Now at that time, our magistrate was still John Harriet from, from the uh, initial, our initial magistrate. And these murders occurred in the parish of St George's in the East. St George's East is, is still a large church up on, up on what is now the highway, uh, a wonderful Hawksmoor building up there. But Harriet was very much one of life's great doers. And although this was technically nothing to do with him, didn't come within his, his legal remit, uh, he had the first officer on scene, a police constable by the name of Charles Horton, actually went up and, and, and searched the place on the night of the murders. Uh, he had evidence relating to the murders in an item called a pea and mole. A pea and mole was basically a large shipwright's hammer with a large wooden shaft, a big metal lump on the end, sharp at one end, blunt at the other, used for caulking ships uh, in in the days of of, of wooden sailing ships. He returned to Wapping with this piece of evidence which was covered in in blood and and body material and and this he gave to, to, to Harriet. So next morning, Sunday morning, bright and early, Although it's got nothing technical to do with him, Harriet is up at the murder scene carrying out his own investigation, bringing yet more evidence back to, uh, back to, back to Wapping and going straight into print, issuing circulars to local people who can give us evidence on these foul and wicked murders. Now, I say the Home Secretary wanted early arrests and over that first fortnight, lots of people were arrested. And and, uh, and and brought to uh, the station for questioning. But they were all discharged. They all had alibis. And after a fortnight had passed, the local population are beginning to think, well, you know what, if this was committed by a, a, a sailor, perhaps then the possibility is they've gone to sea, perhaps halfway across the Atlantic by now, mm. never to come back and, and, and bother us again. Uh, so perhaps we can get back to a life of normality. Uh, but on or about the 19th of, uh, of, of December, another set of murders occurred. Uh, the publican, the wife, and the, the uh, serving lady in the King's Arms Tavern in what was then uh, Lower Gravel Lane, it's now Garnet Street, are all brutally murdered. 
uh, by a group of people. Uh, uh, and we know it's a group of people because on this occasion, the murders were actually witnessed by someone who was resident in the pub. Uh, having seen the murders take place and, and managed to hide himself, uh, once the murders of, murderers have escaped out of the back, mm. he then descends in the traditional manner, stark naked, down knotted uh, bedsheets, to raise the, the hue and cry. So now we have a, a total of seven people murdered in, in just a couple of weeks. Now Harriet, the magistrate, is around the same time examining the hammer from the first set of murders. Now, when he'd received it originally, it was wet and sticky with blood. Uh, now, a fortnight later, that blood has dried, it's congealed uh, and become flaky. And he may be one of life's great doers, but he's certainly not one of life's great uh, forensic scientists. As he touches the top of the, uh, the hammer, the metal head, some of the blood flakes off, and underneath the blood, he can see the initials, JP, scratched into the head of the hammer. And so, with this clue... He goes back into print again. Can anyone give us information about this hammer, this P and mole? Now we know it belongs to someone called JP. Uh, step forward, a lady by the name of Anne Vermelo. Anne Vermelo runs the Pear Tree Tavern just around the corner from here in, in Wapping. And she said, I believe that hammer belongs to one of my residents. But he can't be your murderer because he's away at sea and is not due back for some months yet. But now the police have got their first clue and they go round to the Pear Tree Tavern and they turn it over and they search it properly. And they find what we, we would today call circumstantial evidence. They find a blood-stained knife hidden in a wall cavity. They find uh, blood-stained clothing hidden in a, a, a privy toilet area. And they find the pocket watch from John Williamson, the, the publican of the, uh, pet, uh, of the uh, King's Arms Tavern. And so they feel justified in questioning all the people there. And their suspicion falls on one particular man, a sailor by the name of John Williams. Now, John Williams has no history of violence. He's got no history of criminality. He's something of a ladies' man. But when they ask him one particular question, he arouses their suspicion. And that question was, how long have you been ashore, John? And it was quite some time. How much money have you got in your pocket, John? Still quite a lot. Now, in those days, a sailor would come ashore, he'd spend his money on wine, women and song, and when his money runs out... Go off to work again. Back he goes <laughs> yeah. to sea. And when they search him, they find he's still got plenty of money in his pocket. And the obvious question from a suspicious police officer is, where'd you get the money from, John? And it's a question which he couldn't answer to their satisfaction. So they take him before the magistrates. And unfortunately for John Williams, the magistrates ask him exactly the same questions. And he still hasn't thought of an answer for it. Uh, so they say, right you are, John. What we're going to do is we're going to go away and make a few more investigations. You will be going away to uh, stay at His Majesty's pleasure in the Cold Bathfield Prison for a few days while we make these inquiries. So off he goes up to Islington to Cold Bathfield Prison, which is where Mount Pleasant Sorting Office is now. But he's not too unhappy. He knows he thinks that once he's going to be re-questioned again on, on Boxing Day, he's going to be able to convince everyone of his absolute innocence in this matter. So the magistrates go away, they make some more inquiries, and they come up with yet more circumstantial evidence. It seems that John Williams and Timothy Marr from the first set of murders had sailed together at sea, and there was no love lost between the two men. It also seems that John Williams had been drinking in the King's Arms Tavern late on the night of the second set of murders with a very unsalubrious looking group of associates. So on Boxing Day, the, on the, the, the day when he's going to be questioned again, the courtroom is packed with people wanting to hear the answers that he's going to give to these new questions. The wagon draws up from uh, uh, Cold Bathfield's prison. The driver gets down, has a quick word with the magistrates. Unfortunately, John Williams won't be answering any questions today on account of him being dead. It seems he took his own life by strangulation the night before. This is a bit of a problem for the magistrates and they say, well, what are we going to do now? What we're going to do is we're going to hear all the evidence in his absence and then we'll come to a decision. So that's what they do. They hear all the evidence and at the end of that uh, process, the decision they reach, surprise, surprise, is that John Williams must be the Ratcliffe Highway murderer, regardless of the fact he's got no history of violence, regardless of the fact that the second set of murders was seen to be committed by a group of people. Wasn't his own death a little bit sort of suspicious as well? Well, it's actually it? quite difficult to strangle yourself when you're chained and manacled to a wall. Yeah. But that, that doesn't seem to have, have concerned uh, the magistrates too much. So they write a quick letter to the Home Secretary uh, explaining their thoughts. And the, and the Home Secretary replies, well done, chaps. I think you've solved the case. 
Now all we need to do is prove to the good people of the East End that this foul and wicked murderer is no longer a threat to them. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to hold a procession through the streets. The body will be paraded through the streets so everyone can see uh, this, this man is no longer a threat and then we'll dispose of the body. And that's what happened. 10,000 people turned up. The magistrate, the uh, Home Secretary wanted uh, the River Police, the Bow Street Horse Patrol, and a local watchman to be on hand just in case there was any uh, um, outbreak of violence. In the end, it went off in almost complete silence. Apparently, what? One hackney carriage driver whipped the body around the, the face as it, as, oh, as nice. it came past. I, I'm guessing it wasn't just to show that, that everyone was now safe from this horrific murderer, if it wasn't. I think it was symbolic. But it was also to show, look, look what we can do, yeah. you know, look how skillful we are, That's right. our investigative and, and, skills. And everyone wanted to, to see how this body was going to be disposed mm. of. And having, having paid proper respects outside of the two murder locations, the pub and, and the uh, and Mars Mercery business, the uh, body was taken up to the church, St George's in the East, but it couldn't be buried there because it was believed he was a suicide victim. And the place you disposed of suicides was in the nearest crossroads. Mm-hmm. And so they took the body around to the nearest crossroads, which is Cable Street and Cannon Street Road. They dug a, they dug a narrow pit by the side of the road, uh, took the body down from the cart, drove a wooden stake through his heart oh, nice. and then buried him in a kneeling position. At Crossroads, because it was thought at that time someone as wicked as this man, his spirit will surely arise and being at Crossroads, it will be trapped there. It won't know which way to turn so the local people will be kept safe in this manner. And in a kneeling position, the Williams would know an eternity of discomfort perhaps. In the end, he only had to put up with a, about a century of discomfort because uh, a hundred years later, the body was dug up by the gas board uh, <laughs> and, and it went away for research. The skull came back and went on display in the pub on the corner of the Crown and Dolphin. Uh, eventually, that was stolen and the pub, the building is still there, but it's no longer a pub. So that was the end of John Williams. Yeah. And the murders stopped, presumably. And the so murders then. stopped, but it is most unlikely that Williams had was responsible. To do with it. Yeah. For the, he may have had been part of the gang. He certainly didn't kill uh, seven people in such a violent fashion. So what was the overall significance? What was the impact of that? Because, I mean, that's a wonderful story, historical story. It's what, a, a lovely story, <laughs> unless you're... Very well told as well, yeah. <laughs> but what's the overall impact and significance it, of that in modern-day policing? It's it? highlighted the need for a more efficient form of policing. Mm. The old-fashioned way of policing with just uh, a magistrate and a local constable per parish was now seen to be ineffective, and there had to be, it was decided, a more efficient way of, 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 of dealing with, with enhanced criminality. And, and so it, that was seen as one of the reasons for actually bringing about the Metropolitan Police. But that was still several years down the line. Yeah. So if we fast-forward to today yeah and um, we were going forward i don't know what 150 to 200 years nearly now yeah. aren't we 220 yeah. years 220 yeah. odd years i mean that was obviously one of the key incidents at the very beginning of the formation of the, the force in terms of the river police themselves they've had some fairly key incidents as well there's been the um prince alice disaster yeah and there's been the which was my lifetime and your your lifetime was you actually on active duty at the time yeah. the marchioness disaster as well yeah when people ask me what are the defining times of my 32 years service? It's, it's really quite easy. And it's, I speak purely personally. The defining points of my service were the Marchioness disaster mm. of 89. I'd been down on the river uh, just a year then. Um, I should have been early turn next morning. Uh, and I was called out uh, at two o'clock in the morning, uh, rushed down here uh, and, and then straight out on a boat. But by, the, by that time, the rescue had actually finished, and by then it was a, a recovery. For, for those listening who are not as um, young as you and I, uh. <laughs> <laughs> just just briefly, what were the circumstances of that tra- tragedy? Yeah, the, the Marchioness disaster. The, the Marchioness was a, a pleasure boat. On that particular night, uh, it was a very, very str- It was an August night uh, in 1989, a fine night, weather, the weather was good. The prevailing conditions on the river were the the river was flooding it was a a, a good strong flood 
and the Marchioness was outward bound. And it was about to make its way through uh, Southwark Bridge. Coming down behind it... So it's, up, a, it's a party It's a party. It's boat. a party boat. Hide yeah. out for there, parties yeah, and there discos. Was, there and was a, a party disco... Like going, corporate going events and yeah. things would take place that's, on that's, board. That, yeah. That's right. Yeah. The, the, these were quite common. Mm. Not so much these days, mm-hmm. but, but certainly in those days. Yeah. Regular events on the weekend. Uh, coming down from Battersea was a much larger vessel called the Bow Bell. It was a, it was a gravel vessel going out to sea to to dredge gravel to br- to bring back uh, for the building for the building trade. Mm. There were radio messages, but either the Marchioness didn't hear them or they weren't receiving them. And in the end, the Bow Bell collided, ran down the, the Marchioness during during the centre arch. And 52 people lost their lives that night. It was indeed amazing. And you were on duty that evening, I got called. Yeah, I was called in at two o'clock in the morning um, and, and, and I was on duty for several days after that, during the aftermath. And the officers uh, who, who were on duty that night did as, as well as they could. They actually saved about 61 people. Yeah, remarkably. Uh, uh, I mean, yeah, in just, in just four boats. They, they, they did a, a wonderful job. This is in pitch black. Absolutely, fast yeah. Fast moving water, deep water. Very fast moving. Yeah. Very fast moving in, indeed. But it was a defining moment in my uh, s- service because of all, all the things that changed after that. There were inquests, there were uh, in- inquiries, uh, and, and life on the river was, was, was never the same again. Were you ever called to give evidence in, in the inquest? Or I wasn't yeah. called to give evidence, but a colleague and, and mine were actually uh, called upon to take the jury, to meet the jury up at Putney uh, so that they could see one of our boats uh, and know what sort of in, uh, uh, kit we carried, mm. uh, which really was quite, quite basic. And, and part of the uh, reply from, from, from the inquiries yeah. was that police boats should be, should be better equipped to deal with uh, such matters. So how, how did things change after that incident in terms of the organisation? Well, I suppose the, the major change on the river was the coming of the lifeboats. Uh-huh. Basically, the life, the RNLI said we we can take on search and rescue. Search and rescue is coordinated by the, the Marine and Coast Guard Agency and the uh, the RNLI uh, at Tower Pier, which is which is the old floating river police station underneath uh, Waterloo Bridge, are what's referred to now as the primary resource. Uh, so, in the event of an emergency on the river, uh, the first people to be notified will be the RNLI at, 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 at Tower Pier, and having done that the Coast Guard at the radio station at Woolwich. So London, what, what are the sort of core duties and activities of the River Police Today station here? Well, today, the majority of their work revolves around counter-terrorism. As, as you know, the other part of my uh, defining point was 9-11. Yes. After 9-11, policing worldwide changed, and certainly policing on the river changed. There were so many vulnerable premises uh, so many vulnerable places on the river uh, that it was felt there needed to be an increased response uh, incorporating uh, the the river police and all the other units within the police. Uh, so what the river police do now is liaise with all the other units within the police, dogs, specialist dogs, firearms dogs, uh, firearms branches, and if there's felt a need to have enhanced security on the river in the, in the, in the uh, say, firearms or anything like that, then they will bring down teams from SO19 and they will go out afloat uh, and do whatever is necessary. And you quite often see the the uh, training exercises they do on, on the news bulletins. And how many are there in the task force, in, in, the, in the unit? In the marine policing yeah, marine. unit, there's... It's, it's it's been reduced. All like policing has been reduced over yeah. recent years. Uh, but there's about sixty officers. Okay, within it's still the unit. quite small, isn't it, relative to the? It's 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 quite small, but uh, they are highly trained. Yes, uh, they have to patrol on the river in very fast boats, so they're highly trained. Uh, they have to undergo an intense training at the beginning of their their, their service on, on the river, including driving boats, navigation, uh, river law, maritime law, etc. Et and they've got uh, a unit that deals with diving as well, so recovery yeah, they ha- of, of they have bodies, ten, unfortunately. Yeah, there's a, di- a dive team on the river. <laughs> they, they deal mostly with crime-related things rather than bodies. Most mm. of their work is not done on the river, mm. but in allied waterways. So, the, I mean, the river, what I used to know as the River Police, the Metropolitan Police uh, Marine Policing Unit, as, it, as, as it's now called, is responsible for all of the 
maritime environments within the London area. So that's canals, uh, rivers, lakes, reservoirs. Uh, so they can be called quite literally. And I'm guessing they would have had anyway. an involvement in the recent terrorist activity on London Bridge and all, all of and all of the big, market around there. Yeah, all of the the most recent high profile terrorist incidences, the River Police have had a, a primary role. They were evacuating people from uh, riverside premises during the London Bridge. So in many respects, they're as important today as they were when they were first founded. Absolutely. And it's almost come full circle, just more up-to-date need for them. Absolutely, yeah. It, it's just, when I, when I joined in, in 88, my primary thoughts, if you like, were for the safety of people jumping mm. in the river and that sort of thing. But, but now, it's, there is a relevance to policing London in the modern age of, of terrorism as, as anyone else. Yeah. And it's good to see when you're going, you know, going for a walk along the riverfront or just taking a leisurely boat ride up and down the river. It's good to see that the police are there sort of yeah. monitoring thing. It gives you a sense of security. Well, I think everyone is pretty much unanimous when you talk to people. When I speak to a lot of members of the public within the museum, uh, what they want is visible policing. Mm. The one thing that we do down here is highly visible Very policing visible. Yeah. Uh, because... People who are terrorists don't just do things by chance. They don't wake up one morning and think, oh, I'm going I'm, I'm to commit a terrorist atrocity. Yeah. They plan it. Yeah. It's planned. And, and they will go along and they will see what's happening in a, in a given location, how many police officers are there, how many, uh, if it's on the river, how many boats are going past, how often they're going past, how many people are on the boats and that sort of thing. Uh, and so the whole idea is to keep would-be terrorists off guard. They never know if it's just going to be three people in a boat or if you're going to have a firearms team coming down close behind. Yeah, very true. It keeps people very much on their guard. Keeps them guessing. Yeah. So we started off by saying where, where we're sat, which is in the museum of uh, the Thames River Police Museum, of which you are the honorary uh, curator, yeah. which is a voluntary position. So yes. So you're obviously highly passionate about what you do. So just give us an outline, a, a flavour to the listeners of what they can find here, because... I don't want you to be rushed off your feet with people banging down the door wanting to come and see it, but I, w I do want people to come and see it if they possibly can. Well, well, we have a website. Uh, so if, if very simple, just, just type into your browser, a Thames Police Museum, uh, and you'll come to our website. Uh, and uh, on the back page, there's a contact page. You can just click on there and you'll get an email format come up, uh, which will come uh, directly directly mm -hmm. to me. So that's one way. Or you can write to us at uh, at the police station, 98. And when they're here, I mean, just tell us some of the artefacts and memorabilia that, <laughs> okay, that, that, so that is what, what housed got, here. What we've got here is a room packed of artefacts from 220 years of policing the river. So there's bits of uniform, uh, bits of policing hardware, uh, so pistols, swords, Documents, some of the oldest documents relating to policing. And these are some of the original, that's, oldest documents that's right. in the country it, yeah, to, do, to in, do with policing. That refer to policing all over and the you, world. And it's visible. You can you yeah, take them, you you, kindly you can, took them out of the cabinet. Yeah, people, people come here. Uh, um, I mean, one of the most usual requests I get is uh, I, we had a family member who used to be a river police officer uh, back in eighteen. Can you can you tell us something about him? And and usually we can. Fantastic. Um, we, we, we can normally do some research because you've got people. inventory of not only the goods and materials and the weaponry yeah, but you've got we, all the names of all the past the, the thing members about, of the force the thing about river police officers they, they seem never to have thrown anything away yeah. uh, so we've got a whole a whole range of things here we have three open days a year on, on, on weekends mm -hmm. uh, I think this year Saturday July the 13th is the Wapping Shindig and we'll be open uh, between 11 and 5 o'clock for that and open, also open house weekend in September uh, we will be open both are these weekends. noted on the website or do people have to email uh, you to no, ask the details they, they're, they're not on the website yeah. uh, so probably best just to email you yeah, through, if, through if the website to find out how, how can I come and see, say this then I, I, can, I, can, I can tell them yeah I thoroughly recommend people I mean not only that but the, the building that it's housed in this used to be the old carpenters yeah building the, where they the, used to repair all the old ships that's right the room itself is actually part of the history mm. it was a, a, a room that was acquired in 1872 so that the carpenters actually had somewhere to work uh, and we've still got the benches some of the models they used to make in their spare time even the marks on the 
floor where the, where the old laves were angle grinded off the yeah. uh, off the floor. It, it is a wonderful little little known and little museum, which is beautifully curated and with a wonderful storytelling from you, Rob, as well. So much appreciated. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on on the podcast today. Thanks for asking me, Steve. We've come to the part of the uh, the conversation now where I typically ask my guests to tell us one, you know, two secret places that they love that people in London want to go somewhere slightly different that they're not familiar with, and that is a secret, but something special that you know about. So just tell us a little bit about the place that you've got in mind for us, will you, Rob? Yeah, the place which I would uh, choose is a personal interest to me. It's Postman's Park in Aldersgate. It's a little park uh, which used to be used for postmen in their lunch breaks, just very close to St Paul's there. Uh, and in that garden, there's a, a little memorial, uh, the George Frederick Watts Memorial, to people who've lost their lives in saving other people's lives. So a tribute to everyday heroes. And the personal aspect for me is right up on the top left-hand corner uh, is one police constable, Alf Smith. And Alf Smith was my great uncle, and, and he lost his life trying to save 150 women and children in the first daylight air raid on London in, uh, on, on June the 13th, 1917. Uh, and in fact, he's since been recommend, uh, recognised not just by his plaque in Postman's Park, but also by a people's plaque in Islington uh, on, the, on the site uh, where he actually uh, was killed by a 50 kilogram bomb during that air raid. That's lovely. That's very, very touching and a wonderful place for people to go because I'm sure not many people, I, I've not heard of it. So please get along there and go and pay your respects and go and relax in the, in the park. Sounds like a lovely place to, uh, to go and visit. And I do hope that people will avail themselves and not drive you completely barmy <laughs> because I know your time is your, your volunteer. Yeah. But do come along and take a look. It's well worth the trip. Thank you very much, Rob. Thank you, Steve. Every week here at Your London Legacy, we bring straight to your device a new and fascinating guest with a wonderful London-based story. We hope you enjoy listening to their timeless stories as much as we enjoy creating them for you. If so, the best way to show your appreciation is to subscribe to the show. Simply go to www.yourlondonlegacy.com and pop your name and email in the box where shown. That way, you'll never miss another episode. Thank you for your support.